Sunday morning service, July 29, 2012. The message by Pastor Anthony Brown, Secrets, based on Judges 14. Good morning. Hello again. It's a pleasure to be here again for one more time. Whoops. Did that last week as well. Last week we looked at Judges chapter 13, the announcement of Samson's birth. This week we're going to look at Judges chapter 14, uh, and we're going to meet Samson himself. Uh, If you have a Bible in front of you, it would be good to to turn to Judges chapter 14, because I want to follow it quite closely. And as you're turning in your Bible to Judges 14, let me just say that these stories in the three chapters that tell us about Samson's adult life uh, are really good stories. And as a result, as far as any Bible stories are well known, these are quite well known. Um, So people know a bit about Samson. They know, for example, that he was a strong man, that he killed a lion, that he pulled down a temple. They know that he fought the Philistines. They know that he had his hair cut off. Uh, And Delilah's name uh, will be familiar to us, possibly mostly because of the Tom Jones song, but not the Bible instead. But nevertheless... Now, some of those things about Samson's story are familiar to us. And we also tend to have a very negative view of Samson. We think of him as being an excessively violent character, one who follows his lusts. In fact, uh, we see him with three different women during uh, the course of the three chapters of it, which record his adult life. He breaks the vow that he's made to God, his Nazarite vow. He's cruel, he's deceptive, he's destructive. And so we have a a pretty negative view of Samson. But there is a problem with this view of Samson. The Bible doesn't seem to agree with us. The writer of Judges, even though he gives us Samson with all of his faults and failings, never condemns him. And he presents him just as he presents the other judges of Israel, including some great heroes like Deborah and Gideon. And then in the New Testament, we come to Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter which records something about the heroes of faith, as we call them. And there is Samson, recorded alongside all of these other examples of faith. So we have to think carefully about what the Bible is telling us through the story of Samson. Let me do, uh, before I read the rest of the chapter, let me do exactly as the author of the book of Judges does and let you in on uh, the secrets that make up uh, the core of this chapter. Last week we talked about four views of God. This week we're talking about five secrets. The five secrets are the secret of God's purpose. The key verse for the passage is verse Uh, 4, you have the NIV, I believe, in front of you in the pews. And in verse 4, the NIV puts uh, puts verse 4 in brackets. And yet it's actually the most important verse for chapter 14 and chapter 15. It's perhaps the most important verse for understanding Samson's story altogether. The second secret is the secret of the killing of the lion. 
The third is the secret of where the honey comes from. The fourth is the secret of the meaning of the riddle that Samson gives. And then the fifth secret is how the Philistines uncover the meaning of the riddle, although in fact that's not actually much of a secret. So let me pick up from where we were in the chapter and read the rest of Judges chapter 14. I'm going to begin at verse 10. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose thirty men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me thirty linen garments and thirty sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days they could not give the answer. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle to us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied, so why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down thirty of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions, who had attended him at the feast. This is a a story about five secrets. And because it's a story, we need to really follow it in order. If we were reading one of uh, Paul's letters, we could look for themes and ideas. But when we're looking at a narrative, we need to follow the order intentionally used by the author. Because often the way that the story is told is just as important as what the story is about. The first thing that we find out about Samson when he's introduced to us in that last verse at the end of chapter 13 is that the spirit is stirring in him as an adolescent. He's been called to be the deliverer of Israel. Now what does that mean? Well, we've had several deliverers already appear in the book of Judges. What have they done? Well, in each case, what they've done is raise an army. They've been used by God to draw together the people to raise an army so that they could fight against the other nations that were oppressing them. And in that way, they've been deliverers of the people of Israel. They've delivered Israel from Israel's enemies. So, of course, when we come to uh, Samson and we hear that Samson is going to be a deliverer, we expect this is what Samson will do. He will raise an army 
and he'll fight against Israel's enemies, the enemies of God. But the first thing that he does is to express a desire to marry one of Israel's enemies. It's quite extraordinary. We expect him to raise an army against his enemies. Instead, he wants to marry one of them. And we know that this is wrong because the law of Israel stated that the Israelites must not do this. And Joshua reminded, of this, reminded them of this when they first entered uh, the promised land. Let me read you Joshua's words from the book of Joshua, chapter 23. If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land the Lord your God has given you. So why is Samson pursuing this marriage to a Philistine woman? To make things more confusing, there's that verse 4, where we're told his parents did not know that this was from the Lord. Somehow God is at work in this. Somehow God is using Samson's lusts to achieve his purposes. And what are God's purposes? Well, verse 4 goes on to say, the Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. With the nation of Israel in such a mess, ruled by a foreign power, having abandoned belief in God, not worshipping him, not following him anymore, and no longer even crying out to him in their distress, God has to create an occasion for the Israelites to be reminded that the Philistines are their enemies. They're so compromised that they've forgotten who their enemies are. So God has to create an occasion to make the point that these are still his enemies and the enemies of the people of Israel. So that's the first secret then, that God is at work through all of this. And that's the controlling secret, the most important secret in the passage. The secret that however strange these events may be, God is at work. Now, sometime after this, Samson goes down to Timnah with his father and mother. Somehow he gets separated from them on the journey, and a lion comes towards him. And the passage says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he tears the lion apart. Now, what on earth is going on here? The text says literally that the Holy Spirit rushed on him in order that he could tear a wild animal apart. What on earth can this possibly be about? First he's marrying the enemy, now he's killing wild animals. It puts me in mind of that strange incident where Jesus curses the fig tree. You remember, he curses the fig tree because the fig tree has no fruit on it, but it's the wrong time of year for the fig tree to bear fruit. It's a very strange story. And this story of the lion is similarly mysterious. The story goes on. He doesn't tell his father and his mother what's happened. So there's the second secret. He kills the lion, but he doesn't tell his parents that this has happened. Now sometime later, he goes back to marry the woman, and he turns aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he finds a swarm of bees and some honey. 
Now, it's important that we recognize that that's not a normal natural event. When an animal dies, what do you get inside a dead animal's carcass? Well, you get maggots and flies and you don't get bees and honey. The only way that something like this could happen would be if the body somehow misses out the putrefaction stage and dehydrates very, very quickly. So really what we're talking about here is a miracle, an act of God in drying up this carcass and then placing inside the dead animal the swarm of bees and the honey. This is a miraculous event. And this, of course, means that it's not a chance event. It has a specific purpose. Now, Samson is completely oblivious to this purpose, whatever it might be. He just reaches in, scoops out a handful of honey, and he eats it. And he gives it to his parents as they go along. Again, this is very strange behavior. Remember, he has a Nazarite vow. That's the thing that defines him. And what is a Nazarite vow? Well, no drinking, no touching dead bodies, and no cutting his hair. So here he is scooping food out of a dead body. He's not allowed to do that. But far worse than that, there's an injunction for all Israelites that you mustn't eat unclean food. Food which has touched a dead body is unclean, and he feeds it to his parents without telling them. So there's the, the third secret. He doesn't tell them about the origin of the honey. What kind of a savior can this man possibly be who leads his own parents into breaking God's law? Well, his father goes down to see the woman and Samson holds a feast. And this feast, we're told, is customary for young men. Well, it's customary for young Philistines. So he's participating in one of their customs. This is not one of his customs. The feast is literally a drinking party. So again, he's breaking his Nazarite vow. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that Samson drank. So maybe he didn't. But it seems highly unlikely when he's hosting a seven-day drinking party that he'd be completely abstinent throughout. But it's verse 11, I think, that's really striking here. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Now, companions is a generous word to use here. Bodyguards or bouncers would perhaps be, be, be better. That's really what we should be saying. There's already a recognition among the Philistines. Even though Samson has not been at war with them so far, there's already a recognition that Samson is somehow dangerous to them. They don't prevent him from marrying a Philistine woman, but they're afraid of him. So they provide 30 tough guys who can keep him under control at the party. So when we come to the riddle that he uh, presents to these tough guys, what's going on here is it's all about bravado, showing who is the toughest. Samson challenges these tough guys with this riddle, and they just say, go on then, tell us your riddle. This is about being macho, being man enough to take the challenge. Now, it seems to us when we read the riddle, there's something odd about it, though. He tells them that the riddle is, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. Well, we know what this means. We've been let in on all of the secrets of this chapter. We know already that he's talking about the lion and the honey. 
But how on earth could they possibly know that? How could they possibly work out the solution to this riddle? It seems to us entirely unfair. Now, if it was a riddle like, I have a house with all four walls that face south, I look out of the window and see a bear, what color is it? Now, that's fair enough. It's simply a riddle, but you can work it out, right? All the walls are facing south, so the house must be on the North Pole. So when you look out of the window, the bear must be a polar bear, so it must be white, right? Now, it's silly, but at least you can work it out. It's possible to work out the answer to the riddle. But how can the Philistines work out Samson's riddle? There's just no way to work it out. Well, it's important to know that this is exactly the kind of riddle that they were expecting. You see, in the ancient world, riddles were supposed to be impenetrable. They were supposed to be impossibly difficult. What it really is, is a dare. Samson, this Israelite tough guy, is daring these 30 Philistine tough guys. He's daring them to take on this riddle, and so they do. That's what this is all about. It's a dare. And of course, they, they can't work out what the riddle means. So they have to threaten his wife. She finds out what this is all about, and she lets them know. And they wait until the, the last minute. This is a dramatic uh, showdown at high noon kind of moment. They wait until the last minute, just when they're about to have to pay up, to give their answer to Samson. And then they don't just explain the answer. They give their answer back in the form of a riddle themselves. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Now they've thought about this. And the reason that we know they've thought about this is that both riddles, the first one, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet, and this second riddle, both riddles are six words long, and all of the words in Hebrew begin with the same letter except for the first. So they, they're carefully crafted riddles. And this second one, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? What's the answer? Love. Love is the answer to this riddle. Love is sweeter than honey. Love is stronger than a lion. When Samson gives them his riddle, he's making fun of them. Out of the strong, something sweet. The Philistines are strong. They're the ones with an army. They're the ones in control of Israel. But he's taken from out of them something sweet, one of their own women. So in response, in the second riddle, their response, they talk about love. And what they mean, of course, is that your wife loves us, not you. Your wife loves us more than you. She's faithful to us, not to you. Now Samson sees through their words and he responds with this, frankly, very rude reply. If you'd not plowed with my heifer, you would not have uh, solved my riddle. And then he goes down to the Philistine town of Ashkelon, strikes down 30 Philistines, strips them of their clothes, and brings their clothes back and gives them to those who'd solved his riddle. Now we need to notice the order of what happens in verse 19. It isn't that Samson in his fury and burning anger goes and does this. It's that the spirit of the Lord came on him in power and he goes to Ashkelon. And then the passage says, burning with anger, he returned to his father's house. 
This, of course, is the fulfillment of what the writer told us was God's purpose in verse 4, that God was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Samson makes fools of the Philistines at this party. He gives them the trophies of his victory over their own people. So there are the five secrets. The secret of God's purpose, the secret of the killing of the lion, the secret of the source of the honey, the secret of the meaning of the riddle, and then the secret of how the Philistines uncovered the solution to the riddle. They're the five secrets that make up this story. But we haven't explained why the Holy Spirit empowers Samson to kill a lion, or why God miraculously infests this lion with bees. What do these things represent? What's, what's happening here? Well, the clue, I would suggest, is in verse 8. Samson turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. You see, a very odd word is used there. In English, we just read a swarm of bees. He finds a swarm of bees and some honey inside the lion. But the word used there is not the normal word for a swarm of bees. The word there, in fact, isn't the word for swarm at all. In fact, this word is never used for that anywhere else. The word that's used is the word community. And every time in the Old Testament, except once, when that word is used, it means the people of Israel. It means the community of God's people. So what's being pictured here is Israel, the life and the sweetness of God's presence in the midst of the Philistines who are strong outwardly, physically, but who are dead spiritually. So we have this image of the lion. The lion is strong but dead. The Philistines strong but dead. And the image of the swarm and the honey, Israel, the living community, where the sweetness of God's presence dwells. But Samson never recognizes this. He doesn't see that God is showing him something about the people of Israel who he's supposed to lead. Nor does he recognize that God is showing him something about himself. See, all of this is also true of Samson. Samson is strong on the outside, physically strong, but he's also spiritually pretty dead. And yet, the life and the sweetness of the presence of God is at work in him. The Spirit keeps coming on him, stirring him, moving in his life. So the sweetness of the presence of God is there. But Samson doesn't recognize it. It's tremendously ironic when you think about it that Samson uses this event as a riddle for others, but he doesn't understand the meaning of this event himself. He doesn't understand that God is speaking to him through this. He doesn't recognize that God is speaking to him in the miracle of the bees and honey. He just uses it as a riddle for someone else. And this has been the, the, the pattern throughout the whole passage. Samson doesn't realize that when the Holy Spirit begins to stir in him, as a young man at the end of chapter 13, it means that God is with him, that he has a special call, that he is to, to do something special for God. And then in verse 6, in giving Samson the strength to defeat the lion, God is signaling that he's giving Samson the strength to defeat the Midianites. When we have those special moments in our lives, what we might call small experiences of the presence and power of God, 
we're supposed to understand that we can rely on God for, for much bigger things, that his presence and power will be with us in larger challenges that we face in our lives. But Samson doesn't understand this. And then, in giving Samson this miracle of the bees and the honey, God is signaling that he wants to bring life and sweetness in the midst of death. But Samson doesn't understand. And then at the end of the chapter, in giving Samson the strength to avenge himself, God is signaling that he's going to protect him, and that he wants to use Samson to deliver Israel from her enemies. But Samson doesn't understand. God is continually providing Samson with opportunities to see the way that he's working his purposes out. He's continually inviting Samson into the secret of his purpose. The way this chapter is told, the writer of Judges is, is a very careful writer, as you can see. The way that this chapter is told, we're, we're in on the big secret, the secret of the way that God is working. And we're in on all of the little secrets too. And this, I think, is the challenge of the passage for us. God is inviting us to be in on the secret of the way that he's working in the world. Let me say that again. God is inviting us to be in on the secret of the way that he's at work in the world. Mark chapter 4. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. In the New Testament, Jesus' teaching reveals to those who have ears to hear how God is at work in the world. Again and again, Jesus' parables concern the secret of the kingdom of God, the, the mission of God, the uh, breaking in of his kingdom into the world, the breaking in of his reign. Through Jesus, God is inviting us once again to be in on the secret of his work in the world. And we have two choices. Either we can be self-centered, ruled by our own wants, desires, and passions like Samson. Or we can be spirit-centered, ruled by the Holy Spirit, and in on the secret of God's purposes in the world. That's why we're told that the Spirit of God began to stir in Samson while he was an adolescent. This is a completely unique uh, event in the Old Testament as far as I know. When the Holy Spirit comes on anyone else in the Old Testament, it's for a particular task and it's for a particular time only. Only here are we told that the Holy Spirit is generally at work throughout the whole life of an individual. In fact, we hear of the Holy Spirit at work in Samson's life in these four short chapters more than the life of any other character in the entire Old Testament. And Samson has the chance to go with that movement of the Spirit, but instead he chooses to go with his own wants and desires and passions. Now notice, that doesn't stop God's purpose being achieved. But for Samson, he's unaware of what God is doing through him. And he sees only a fraction of the fulfillment that he could have been part of. In this chapter, and the next chapter, and the next chapter, he only brings a fraction of the deliverance that he could have been part of if he'd aligned himself with what the Spirit was doing. 
And this is true of us too. We cannot stop God achieving his purposes, even those purposes which he's working out through our lives. But we can stunt what God does through us so that we only see a fraction of the fulfillment of what we could have been a part of. And if we live self-centered lives, giving in to our selfish wants and desires and passions, then we will not recognize what God is doing around us. His purpose will be closed to us, and we'll miss out on the secret of the kingdom, even as God works it out around us. The Last Supper, Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is exactly how God deals with Samson. He's invited to know his master's business. As we read the account, you can hear God saying to him, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. And over and over again, God demonstrates that whatever Samson asks for, whatever he needs to accomplish his mission, God will provide for him. And we too have been invited to participate in God's purpose. And God's purpose is still to deliver people from the enemy, from the oppression of sin, from a life without the sweetness of the presence of God. What is this church really for? Does it exist to meet our wants? Or is it it here for God's purposes? If it is, then it's not about what the church does for us, but it's about what we, the church, do for the world. What we do as those who've been given the job of bringing God's deliverance to Vancouver, the sweetness of God's presence in the midst of death. We've been given the same invitation to participate in God's purposes as Samson. But we're also given the same choice as Samson, to live spirit-centered lives in line with God's purposes, to be the sweetness of his presence in the world, or to live self-centered lives, stunting what God can do through us and seeing God's purpose for us as just, well, one more thing we don't understand. One more riddle. One more secret. Amen.